the old pilot's plain tales. Only a flat tire. There is a pilgrimage for those of the Islamic faith, which should be completed at least once in their lifetime, should the circumstances permit, which takes them to Mecca. This journey is considered one of the five pillars of their religion and is called the Hajj. Each year, upwards of two million of the faithful make the journey to follow the path of the Prophet Muhammad to a number of holy sites before their pilgrimage rites are considered complete. Muslims from around the world would make this journey, which in modern times is often completed using air travel as it was in 1991 when Nigeria Airways wet-leased a Douglas DC-8 operated by Nationair Canada to help them cope with this season's increase in passenger traffic due to the hatch. A wet lease refers to the fact that both the airframe and its operating crew are included in the agreement. The aircraft itself was a 23-year-old Super 60 series, a model of the well-established airliner that was a stretched version of earlier types, which allowed it to fly in a high-density configuration of over 250 passengers. On that day, the aircraft carried 247 passengers, mainly made up from those who had completed their holy pilgrimage. Also on board were 14 crew members, which included experienced flight deck personnel, an ex-Royal Canadian Air Force captain who had over 10,000 hours, a first officer with 8,000 hours, and a flight engineer with 7,500. They had brought their aircraft into King Abdulaziz International Airport in Jeddah, and were shortly going to start their return leg, bound for Sokoto in Nigeria, but in fact, the problem they were about to face had manifested itself several days prior. The DC-8 had flown into Accra in Ghana with a weather radar fault, and whilst waiting for spare parts, it had been decided that the maintenance team would take the opportunity to perform a scheduled A-check. This inspection routine was one of several that had to be performed at intervals. They ranged from the most comprehensive and demanding, referred to as a D-check, which required an entire strip-down of the aircraft, lasted some two months and took around 50,000 man-hours to complete, to a much more simple A-check, which could often be achieved in half a day. The A-check wasn't actually due for 35 hours, but it seemed a good opportunity to get it started, and if they ran out of time, they could always finish it later. Splitting the check up wasn't approved by Transport Canada, but they were in a quiet corner of Africa, a long way from home. Who was going to notice? In charge of the maintenance staff was an ambitious French expat who'd been chosen because of his previous experience working in Africa. He had assured his superiors at Nation Air that everything would go smoothly, and despite his limited experience with DC-8 and rudimentary knowledge of English, he appeared to be living up to his claims. One of the A-check items was a reading from the aircraft's tyre pressures, taken by a pressure gauge. The records show that several of the main wheels had a satisfactory reading of around 180 psi. The readings from tyres 2 and 4 were only 160 psi, but then, in a different pen colour, those readings were overwritten to read an acceptable 180. 
but no work had been done. The tyres had not actually been reinflated to their correct pressure. The paperwork had clearly been falsified. Back online over the next few days, the DC-8 successfully operated several more flights between Saudi Arabia and Nigeria, until it again returned to Accra, where it was scheduled to complete a four-hour maintenance session to replace three main wheels, numbers 1, 2 and 4, which were worn. The lead mechanic had arranged for the new wheels to be stored at the airport in readiness, but when they went to retrieve them, they found that the storage room was locked and nobody had a key. It took two hours to sort out the problem, but just before they started work, the Nation Air Operations Officer at Accra got an urgent message from the man who was managing the leasing project, urging him to get the aircraft back into service as soon as possible since Nigerian Airways were moving passengers onto their own flights and Nation Air could lose a lot of income. In particular, he stated that the message was top urgent and the situation critical. More specifically, he wrote, Do not let maintenance change wheels in Accra. Interestingly, the project officer's understanding of the lease contract that Nationair had with Nigeria Airways was poor. He was pressuring the operations officer in the belief that the airline would suffer financial penalties for the delays or cancelled flights. This wasn't the case. Nationair wasn't at fault if delays were a result of failed equipment or maintenance requirements, so the work could have gone ahead without any undesirable consequences. What's more, he didn't have the background to understand the repercussions of delaying the wheel change. The lead mechanic and the operations officer met, and collectively they decided that the tyre replacement could wait, and that this threat to their contract with Nigeria Airways took precedence. They had to get the aircraft back to Jeddah as soon as possible, and they would do the work the next time. The wheels were loaded into the DC-8's cargo hold, and would be put onto the aircraft when it landed back in Nigeria in two sectors' time. Little did they realise the consequences of this plan. The airliner departed and then landed safely in Jeddah, aiming to depart for Sokoto, Nigeria, that evening. However, their departure time kept slipping as problems occurred. Refueling had to be stopped when it was discovered there was a problem with the payments made for the fuel. After this was sorted out, passenger loading delays caused more difficulties. As they were originally due to fly on a Lockheed TriStar, and the change to a DC-8 meant that the seat numbers didn't match. This resulted in every passenger having to be individually processed rather than in their original block booking. Rounding up the passengers, checking their documentation, and working out who would fly in the smaller aircraft took hours, so it wasn't until 8am the next day that they were ready to board. Shortly before 8 the lead mechanic, who was travelling on the aircraft, remembered that he wanted to check and inflate the tyres that had previously been down on pressure. Why he waited until 20 minutes before departure isn't clear, 
but when the handling agent checked, no bottled nitrogen, the inert gas used for aircraft tyres, was nearby and it would cause further delays to bring it across the airfield from its location. The agent came to the ramp to explain, but the lead mechanic had already boarded the aircraft, so they talked to the project manager instead, who made the decision to... Ah, forget it. After all, they were going to fit brand new tyres after this flight anyway. A few minutes later, the maintenance release was signed off by the flight engineer, who was completely unaware that two of the DC-8's main tyres were below the minimum pressure considered to be airworthy. To the uninitiated, tyre pressure may seem to be a trivial maintenance item. It certainly seemed so to the lead mechanic, who despite having a delay of 12 hours, forgot to arrange for them to be pumped up, and the project officer, who prevented the last-minute attempt to rectify the fault. However, during ground movement, tyres can generate considerable heat through three main causes. Firstly, as a heavy aircraft rolls forwards, its tyres will deform at the bottom, they'll squash down, and then release as the tyre turns, which deforms the tyre carcass, causing the side walls to heat up. Heat transfer will occur from the brakes into the tyres, and friction from the ground also heats up the rubber. Heating reduces the tyre's structural integrity, particularly in the tyres that were already overdue for replacement. In addition, the ground temperature of the taxiways and runway at Jeddah in the summer was extremely high. All these factors were amplified in the number one tyre, since the other tyre on that axle was not up to pressure, causing it to carry a greater load, multiplying the problem. Under the hot sun of the Arabian desert, the scene was set for a disaster. Using the call sign Nigeria 2120, the first officer who was at the controls pushed up the throttles and with 261 souls on board, the DC-8 began its takeoff roll. As the big machine gathered speed and passed 60 knots, the number one tyre on the left main landing gear failed. The crew heard a rumble and felt some vibration. In answer to the flight engineer's query, the FO said he thought they might have a flat tyre. His captain asked if his feet were accidentally pushing down on the brakes. He assured him, saying that his feet were on the bottom of the rudder pedals, away from them. The captain didn't seem overly concerned, and he allowed the takeoff to continue. Thirty seconds later, they reached the V1 decision speed, rotated, and climbed into a clear sky. Below them, the gear was a mess. After the number one tyre failed, the deflated shell of rubber had ripped away until the metal rim was grinding along the runway, leaving a shower of sparks. The friction heated the gear up, setting fire to the adjacent tyres and heads turned to watch as the aircraft got airborne trailing fire and smoke. Unaware of the impending disaster, in the cockpit the calls came as normal. Positive rate, gear up. The captain raised the gear, 
bringing the blazing tires up into the wheel wells inside the wings. Unaware of the internal conflagration that was trapped in the aircraft, the crew went about their departure as normal, accelerating and retracting the flaps and slats that they'd used for takeoff. But within the burning compartment, things were far from normal. The wheel well is a tight space surrounded by vital components like high-pressure hydraulic lines and huge fuel tanks. As the fire grew, it consumed tyres, melted the aluminium surrounds and set magnesium alight. Eventually, a hydraulic line was burnt through, spraying flammable hydraulic oil around like a flamethrower, burning holes in the surrounding internal frame. There were no fire detectors in the wheel wells of the DC-8, so the first thing the crew noticed was some pressurisation warning lights. The captain elected to level the aircraft at 2,000 feet and called air traffic control to advise them, but used the wrong call sign, reverting to his more often used Nation Air call sign. The controller became confused since he was already dealing with an aircraft which, by coincidence, also had a pressurisation fault. By now the fire had started to spread beyond the wheel bay until it breached the centre fuel tank in the belly of the fuselage. More and more damage was being done and one aircraft system after another began to fail. The cockpit became a confusion of faults and warnings, a spoiler light, a gear unsafe light, hydraulic failures, flight control issues and air brake faults. Confusion also reigned in air traffic, but eventually they managed to declare an emergency and asked for an immediate return to the airport. Whilst the situation in the cockpit deteriorated, in the cabin things were a thousand times worse as the fire broke through the floor in the midsection of the aircraft. One can only imagine the horror that faced the passengers, many of whom were unsophisticated people from remote parts of Africa and unused to air travel. Panic spread as people tried to escape the heat, flames and smoke, but the narrow aircraft was packed and there was nowhere to escape to. They burned to death and suffocated where they stood, and eventually as the floor began to burn through, some fell to their deaths. By now a flight attendant had got to the cockpit and reported that there was smoke in the back. Bad, really bad. The captain acknowledged and replied that they were already returning to the airport. As the fire continued to consume vital equipment, the hydraulics completely failed, leaving the first officer to struggle with entirely manual controls. By now they'd swung the aircraft around and had lined up on a runway. It was only ten miles away, but with control runs and electric cables burning through, the first officer lost the use of his ailerons. The captain took over flying and ordered the gear lowered. They were only a few minutes from landing, but with the gear down, blasts of outside air now fanned the flames and the fire became even more intense, 
burning wreckage began to fall from the aircraft, mixed with a horrifying collection of burned seat cushions, life vests and charred bodies which rained down on the outskirts of Jeddah. The captain announced his intention to land, but with the aircraft barely controllable, he was flying an increasingly erratic course, a bizarre dance down towards the runway. They didn't make it. With a mile and a half left to go, the aircraft broke up and fell, slamming into the barren desert where it exploded into an enormous fireball that killed all those left alive on board. The flight lasted only 10 minutes, and it remains the deadliest aviation disaster involving a Canadian airline. The big question for the Transport Safety Board of Canada to answer was why the captain had failed to reject his takeoff when the number one tyre failed at the relatively low speed of 60 knots. It was thought likely that his training within Nation Air had let him down since they only considered engine fires, failures or a total loss of electrics as a suitable reason to stop a takeoff. The indications of a tyre failure were indistinct and had he considered a real possibility he would almost certainly have left the gear in the down position. In the aftermath, the crash, combined with Nation Air Canada's poor reputation for service and mechanical faults, led to serious problems with public image and popularity. They subsequently had very poor labour relations and with damaging media coverage, they became bankrupt in 1993 and ceased trading. Subsequently, their founder and president, Robert Obadiah, was charged with eight counts of fraud, but he never went to prison and his current whereabouts are unknown. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out about that at airlinepilotguide.com. And if you're enjoying Plain Tales as a podcast on its own, then how about leaving us a review? We'd really appreciate it. Many thanks for listening.